be seated. If you want, open your Bibles up to the book of Acts, chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We're going to begin reading from verse 1 all the way down to verse 11 this morning, Acts 18, 1 through 11, and the text will be up on the screen as well. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Christians, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So the first kind of the large picture of this text is simply that we just see Jesus orchestrating everything. We just see Jesus orchestrating everything. That's the real point, I think, of the book of Acts is actually just to see the Lord Jesus building his kingdom. There are these, there are these moments in Scripture that I always just kind of feel a little moved by where we see God creating in sort of masterful craftsmanship and, you know, obviously Genesis 1 and 2 is, is like that. And then, of course, Job, or Proverbs 8 is like that, where you talk where wisdom says, I was with him as he created all these things. And then one of my favorites is in Job 38, where God says to Job and to his friends, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it. On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And we're in chapter 18 now of Acts, and I finally understand what Acts is. Acts is a massive, it's a massive example of King Jesus creating through all of the through all of His sovereignty, creating a new kingdom. Creating a, it's it's a it's a extended creation account, so that the star of the story is always Jesus doing this and doing that, and that's exactly what we see in this passage. Um, back in 1897, so you know when some of you were you know four or five years old, uh, back in 1897 there was this composer named Ducasse, and he he was a French composer, and he. Uh, orchestrated a piece of music. He was highly critical of himself, and so he would he would write pieces of music, and then he would throw them away. So we don't have a ton of his stuff. But the one we have is uh, The Magician's Apprentice. <sighs> that tune. I would, I would hum that tune to you if I could 
if I had it in my head right now, I just can't think. Does anybody have that tune in their head right now? Is it dun 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 dun? I think that's it. Dun 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 dun. So he wrote this tune, and 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 he was basing that off of like a two thousand, I mean more than that, probably year old story about this magician's apprentice, and the magician had all of this power, and then one day the magician left, and depending on how the story goes, the the Disney version from 1940 Fantasia is that the, the, the wizard or the sorcerer leaves and the apprentice, who in the Disney version is Mickey Mouse, he stays behind and he grabs the hat of the sorcerer that has all the power in it. He puts the hat on. And then like the Disney version is really cool because the music's going and then the sorcerer's apprentice starts using his hands like he's conducting an orchestra and he starts bringing things to life and he starts making the environment around him work for him. But the point of the Sorcerer's Apprentice story is that you shouldn't seize power too soon because you might bite off more than you can chew. And so this is a very old story, like thousands of years old. And then you have Jesus come, the Son of God, who bites off all the power. You know, <laughs> Matthew 20, 28, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. And really, you, you see him doing this to everything, all things, like all people, all places, physics, like everything. You see Jesus orchestrating with perfection all things. And that's kind of what the book of Acts is about, and that's definitely what this text is about. And it reminded me of one of my favorite lines from uh, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, that old poem. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. That part there. Deep and unfathomable line, minds of never-failing skill. And that's what we're seeing in our text today, and that's really what we're seeing in the book of Acts, is the Jesus orchestrating all things. He, he, he fashions up the text, or the, psalm, the poem continues, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And so just in that small section of scripture that we read this morning, we see this orchestrating Jesus turning all of these instruments to do what he wants them to do. In verses 1 through 2, we see that Jesus is at work in the politics of the day. It says in those two verses, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Why are Aquila and Priscilla who wind up being uh, not mentioned a ton in scripture, but extremely influential in the early church? Why were Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth in order to meet Paul? Well, because there were riots breaking out in Rome, which were blamed upon the Jews. Maybe they, maybe they were guilty, maybe they weren't. And the emperor expelled all the Jews from Rome. So even as Paul finds himself in Corinth, an extremely Gentile city, he finds these two Jews with whom he would have much successful uh, partnership. Jesus is at work in the politics of the day. And Jesus is at work in the places where people live. I love this detail in verses 5 through 7. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments. Okay, so, so Paul's preaching in the synagogue. They oppose and revile him. We're going to talk about this in three weeks, I believe. He shakes out his garments. 
and says, your blood be on your own hands. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So what does he do next? He leaves there and goes to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God, who lives where? <laughs> Isn't that funny? I mean, this is sort of like, like putting up a, a, a Chick-fil-A next to McDonald's or something, you know? Like, just, it's just open... It's just open and clear combat, right? This is not subtle. This is, okay, you don't want to hear from me? Fine, but I'm going next door. So God had arranged for many, many years prior, no doubt, that this man, Titus Justice, a God-fearer, would live in a particular place, as God has arranged for all of us to live in a particular place. We saw that in Acts 17. And he arranged for this man to live next door to the synagogue. Now, there are many reasons for this, but one of them, as Jesus is and calling this and calling that, is I'm going to convert the head of the synagogue, which is what we see in the passage as we proceed. He did that because he decided that Titus Justice was going to live next door to the synagogue and so on and so forth. And then, of course, the clearest picture of Jesus as conductor is in verse 8 through 10. So we could say that Jesus is at work in the politics of the day. He's at work where people live, and he's at work in the people themselves. And in that end of that text... In verse 10, I believe it is, Jesus goes to Paul one night in a vision and says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So just like all over the place, you see Jesus orchestrating, masterfully creating his kingdom, his church. He is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail Upon it. There's one area of life, one thing that Jesus is orchestrating, one instrument that I didn't talk about yet, and that's what I want to talk about today, and that is work. The beginning of our passage tells us that while Paul was in Corinth, we learned something new about Paul we didn't know until this passage, and that was he was a tent maker. Some people think leather worker, but The tents were made out of leather. He probably was a tent maker. And we didn't know that about Paul until this moment, which is very interesting because that has a lot to do with the way we think about jobs and identity and the way the Bible thinks about jobs and identity, which we'll talk about a little bit today and more next week. But over the next two weeks, I want to talk about seeing Jesus as the orchestrator, the conductor of our work. And uh, I, just, I just trust that the Lord's in that selection of that topic and that it will be an encouragement to you. So look back at verses 3 through 4 of Acts 18. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul, we'll we'll talk more about this next week. Paul was able not only to take care of his own needs, but the needs of others through this job that he had, this career that he had probably been chosen for, that he'd probably been given when he was quite young, to make tents in the city of Corinth. And we'll we'll get more into that next week. But I just just for a moment want to show you some of the things God's doing through this little moment of describing Paul's work. Most obviously, he's using it to support the preaching of the word. He's using this tent-making profession to support the preaching of the word. 
through this job, God is providing Paul with food and shelter and clothing so that the word may continue to go forth in Corinth. Uh, Number two, he is using it to provide the people with an example of humility and servitude. Here is a man with a towering intellect and massive gifting, and at least for a season, he is giving the majority of his time to what appears to a lot of people to be a less than worthy activity. And so in, in some sense, this is a good lesson for Paul, and it's also a good lesson for us. And that is, there is no indispensable servant of the kingdom of God. No one has that it factor to the degree that if they're taken off the, ga- off the game board, like that's, we see that very clearly in this. Number three, he is showing the supremacy of Christ really does extend to all things. And what I mean by that is Jesus is legitimately interested in tent making. And he is actually more interested in tent making than we are. And this is just another picture of Jesus not being a Gnostic. He doesn't see anything wrong. In fact, he sees a lot right with just doing stuff in this world that produces good in this world. Though, of course, it never only produces good in this world. Number four, he is showing that the gospel advances because of the gospel, because of Christ, and not because its messengers are impressive in the world's eyes. Uh, I, I read a critic of, of really everything, a critic of the Bible, a critic of, of truth, a critic of the gospel. He, on this verse, commented, Luke would have us believe that Paul worked in menial labor through the week and then won the respect of the Roman aristocracy on the weekends. Like he says this in that kind of guffaw, kind of scoffing kind of thing. He's not wrong, though. That's a ridiculous claim. Romans really, really looked down on menial labor. The Jews, not so much. They, a lot of their smarter people did, did, did you know, stuff like tent making. But the Romans themselves, it's, this, was, this was just super low, super beneath. Um, at various points in my ministry, I have served as a bivocational pastor. And without question, the majority of the time, both Christians and non-Christians look at that as an evidence of low skill or unfortunate circumstances rather than as evidence of God doing something new, creative, so forth. So the fact that God would position Paul in the eyes of everyone in that city to be what we would call bivocational is evidence that God is interested in in making his gospel and making Christ the point. He, he, what's that? He handicapped Paul in terms of position, in terms of honor and notability in the eyes of all the people he was trying to reach. And the gospel went forth anyway. Number five, he might also be giving Paul a break. Doing direct spiritual ministry is very taxing. I suspect that Paul did not feel more spread thin in this season. I suspect he actually felt refreshed in this ratio of work, you know, tent work to spiritual work. Because the one is definitely harder on your body, but definitely easier on your mind. But later on, Paul lists a lot of challenges he's gone through. He doesn't list tent making as one. (laughs) He does list anxiety for all the churches as one of them. So I suspect uh, Paul's been heavy in ministry. I suspect this is Jesus just saying, go 
go sew some tents together, Paul. By the way, this would mean that he had, for no other reason except for Bible trivia, this would mean he would have exceptionally strong hands. Because it was an awl, like the, you, you've, you've probably seen this, where you poke a hole in the leather, and then you have these huge needles that are curved, and you wrap that needle through and so forth. And then there's hands sensing all of this up. So there's a moment in Galatians where he says, I'm writing this myself. I'm writing this letter myself. Look what large hand it's written in. You know, a lot of people think of that as maybe Paul has a, an, a sight issue. But another explanation is <laughs> that he just had, like, blue-collar carpenter hands that had lost their fine motor skills a long time ago, and he's just, you know, making his A's, <laughs> you know, his alphas, and so forth. Um, n- number six, as Paul is working with Aquila and Priscilla, he's no doubt discussing the kingdom with them. One day, in the same chapter, later on, these two would meet a man named Apollos, who we don't think of as being very important, but he's very important very powerful preacher. Aquila and Priscilla would meet Apollos when he was a man of raw gifting, but needed some theological straightening out. Remember how I told you a number of weeks ago about some nice saints in my life who had come to me and said, hey, this, like, you need to address this issue, whether it's a theological issue or a preaching issue or whatever. Friends, the congregations really do make the clergy. Um, and, And in this case, Paul had had this, extended time of interaction between Aquila and Priscilla. And then Aquila and Priscilla wound up meeting Apollos and somehow they had the theological chops to straighten out this mighty preacher. And where did they get those theological chops from? I mean, they had just spent days and days and days working with Paul. And so just even in this sort of like, Paul, you're gonna take a break. You're gonna gonna make some tents. And here's two people that I've sent you as a consequence of a riot that broke out in Rome. Um, and those people are going to wind up encountering Apollos, and you're going to give them the information they need to know how to correct Apollos and make him a better instrument. And then number seven, he is just providing the world with shade and shelter. And that ain't bad. Tents were a necessary part of ancient life. If you got on a boat that didn't have cabins, they put tents out on the deck of the thing, and that's the only thing that kept you from getting super cold at night as you're sailing across the Mediterranean or whatever. Tents were a hugely important thing, and one of the things God's doing that we can't ever discount is he's just being nice to people. Through Paul's tent making, he's just put one more person, one more laborer, one more business on the earth that is conducted by someone who loves the Lord, who will give a fair deal, who will do a good job. If we neglect that, there's something wrong with us. If we dismiss that, I should say, there's something wrong with us. There's just a lot of good in that. Okay. So what I want for us, the remainder of our time, is I want us to be able to say, I see Jesus at work in my job. I want us to be able to say, I see Jesus at work in my job. And that's not necessarily an easy thing. Um, There's a very ancient link. First of all, I'm going to touch on something here, and then we'll deal with it more next week. There's a very ancient link between occupation and identity. The Bible deals with that at some level and acknowledges it, but also challenges it. We'll get into this 
this next week as well. But when you meet someone, the first thing, three things you often will ask is, what's your name, where are you from, and what do you do? That's not, that's not wrong. There's a reason we do that. Very early on, how are we introduced to Adam and Eve? Partly by what they are supposed to do. They're gardeners, they're rulers and subduers. How do we, what do we know what Eve, why is Eve there? Well, partly because of what her job is, right? When Cain and Abel come onto the scene, what are we told about them? We're told what they do. So this thing that we all tend to do where we kind of conflate identity with occupation, there's something to it. But like most things, we, we take it too far. But we'll, we'll get into that more and more. The problem is, though, because we conflate identity and occupation, here's the, here's the scary thing. In, a study that was done a few years ago found that only 30% of the U.S. workforce feels engaged in their work, meaning they feel compassionate about, or passionate about their work or feel strongly committed to the company that they work for. So 70% of people polled were not engaged, were actively disengaged, checked out, spending less time and less effort and less energy on their work, and so on and so forth. So if 70% of people in our country feel disengaged from their work, feel dissatisfied by their work, and we have this sort of ancient way of viewing occupation and identity together, you, one, one, of the, one of the undiscussed explanations for why so many people are so sad could be an overemphasis on identity and occupation combined with generally very few people finding joy in their work. Here's the thing. Jesus has given us immeasurable numbers of gifts, but one of the coolest gifts I think he's given us, besides like salvation, you know, is he has given you the ability to find joy and meaning in every circumstance. That's a pretty incredible gift. He has given you the ability to find joy and meaning in every circumstance. And that includes the work that you do. And so for you and I, we don't, we look at this and say, there is a way for me to work for the rest of my life, whether I'm a stay-at-home mom or an engineer or whatever. Uh, there's a way for me to work that is mostly going to hit notes of meaning and joy and gratitude and so forth. I mean, that's, that's what Jesus has given us. That's what Jesus has given Paul. Paul doesn't feel sorry for himself right now. Paul's, Paul's, Paul could sing in jail. I think he probably could hum a tune while he was stitching some leather together. So how do we do that? Like, What, what needs to happen for us to be able to say, I'm pretty routinely feel a sense of meaning and joy at work. And that's what I want to talk about today. We won't go super long today, but then also next week. I, somebody had said, one of the youngsters had said that I'm mostly expositional, you know, a joke. I'm also mostly not preaching for an hour and 15 minutes. Every, so we'll keep it relatively short. Uh, how do we do this? How do, how do we... How do we find joy and meaning like Paul did in his work? Well, one of the things that the deepest piece of this is, as a Christian, you were built to find 
joy when you find Jesus. Okay? This is, this is a big deal. And if you don't have this, like, we should talk because this is a big deal. As a Christian, you were meant to see Jesus. Jesus tells the story in the Gospels to see Jesus like a pearl of great price that you discover in a field or like a treasured coin that you had lost, you know, something like that. You're supposed to see Jesus. You're supposed to get excited when you see Jesus. You're supposed to have a, a sense of joy. You're supposed to essentially think, well, well, my life has gone as it needed to go because now I see Jesus. Now that's something that can be cultivated and it's something, it's a muscle that can be atrophied or built. But this is you. If you, are, if you are born again in Jesus Christ through the Spirit, this is the baseline of who you are. Is You are a person who feels joy because you see Jesus. And if you can say to me now, I know that's not true. I know that's unequivocally not true. I am not a person who finds joy in seeing Jesus. I would, talk, I would want to talk to you personally and, and, and talk to you about your salvation and share the gospel with you and just pray with you. And I promise you, I'm not a, a doubter, a doubter beater upper. Like doubting your faith is hard enough. You don't need someone to whop you around. While you're, but you should be honest about this. And if this isn't you, you should, you should talk to someone. I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Okay, so baseline, you as a Christian are made to feel joy when you see Jesus. So how do we find joy in work? We just need to be looking for Christ. We need to be looking for what he's doing. We need to be looking for what he's thinking and so on and so forth. And I just want to point you to six kind of basic ideas, places to think and look. And I'm going to be relatively quick on these. The first one is, remember the creation mandate. In Genesis 1, God says to Adam and Eve, um, he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So one of the things to think about as you're at work is God made me to do this. He made me to do this. I'm acting right now in a way that is consistent with my creational design. God has designed me to go do work into the world. I don't love everything Tim Keller has written. I think I could write a book on things I disagree with him about. But he wrote one really good book uh, in Every Good Endeavor, which is one of the best books on work that I've ever read from a Christian perspective. And if you're struggling with work as a, as a say, you know, 30, 40-year-old, whatever, this is the book for you. If you're struggling with picking a career, just real quickly while I'm pointing out books, if you're younger and you're struggling with picking out a career, there's a book by R.C. Sproul called Can I Know God's Will? And he has one chapter on career, finding God's will for your work, I believe what it's called. You could get that book. It's very cheap. And you could read that one chapter as, as a good step. And then there's another book by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. This is, again, for if you're younger, picking out a career, called Just Do Something, which would also be helpful in that regard. Okay, so here's what Keller says about the creation mandate. We are called to stand in for God here in the world, exercising stewardship over the rest of creation in his place as his vice regents. We share in doing the things that God has done in creation. 
bringing order out of chaos, creatively building a civilization out of the material, a physical, a human nature, caring for all that God has made. This is a major part of what we were created to be. Work has dignity because it is something that God does and because we do it in God's place as his representatives. So as you're at work, think God's literally created to do this. Number two, the curse. You were also, by God's wisdom, called into a world full of friction and setbacks and difficulties. And so you actually, when you experience things that don't work out, this is an opportunity right right then and there to see Christ. See, God built this world full of setbacks and frictions. He cursed it. And you can look at the text yourself in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. God did that so that when you are at work and things don't go right, when there's a misunderstanding, when there's an error, when there's an especially fussy client or an especially presumptuous boss, he built all that in. That's not, that's not a bug. That's a feature, at least for now. And he did that so that you would see that this world is broken because of sin. And you would see, as John Calvin refers to it, the atrocity of sin. So when you are in the middle of a day full of frustrations, when the curse on work is especially evident, just take a moment and say, God, it's good for me to experience this because it reminds me how much sin screws things up. And it also reminds me that I am desperate for the coming of King Jesus when he will make all things new. Um, Paul's sitting there so intense. And you think about like he's literally, his fingers are sore and blistery and so forth. And he's just coming to terms with the sinfulness of sin as he's dealing with difficulty and so forth. He is the one who writes Romans 8 and says, God subjected this world to a curse in hope. He understands that the futility that he's experiencing in his physical labor or the futility he's experiencing at, a, at sea when there's a storm, whatever, he sees that not as this is a setback for me. He sees this as this is a sermon the Lord is preaching to me right now about the reality of sin and my need for a savior and the world's need for a savior and the coming restoration and so forth. Honestly, the truth is, guys, and I'll, I'll, I'll conclude here in a minute by repeating this. We do not have bad jobs. We have bad imaginations. We, we just, we are just so spiritually insensible that we can't see God when he's right there next to us at our desk. Like, what did the old 1950s dad do when he got the office job? He put his pipes, you know, he set his pipe up on the desk, right? Because you smoke a pipe when you work. Everybody knows that. And he set a picture of his wife, right? And his kids. Why the wife and the kids? Why the picture? This is why I'm working. This is what I'm working for. And we get into trouble when we don't have a picture of Jesus on our desk. Well, so on and so forth. We'll talk more about that next week. Number three, common grace. You doing something, whether it's plumbing or teaching or managing your own children at home or being a caregiver, you doing that, just making physical life a little better for someone else is an act of worship if you'll let it be. Jesus, Jesus actually tells us this in Matthew 25, 
For when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did I see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. Like, you don't understand just you having joy at your job and delivering the service that you're delivering has untold impact in how others view the world and how others view God and so on and so forth. Common grace is grace still. Like it's still wonderful. It's still important. Number four, the complexity of Christ. So, you know, I'm a big fan of this idea. Jonathan Edwards taught it to me that Jesus has this sort of multifaceted goodness that is just infinite and, and we're just almost unable to explore it all. He referred to it as the diverse excellencies of Jesus. And here's what I want you to realize. Jesus is too complex for you to get to know him entirely at the kitchen table during your devotionals. Jesus is so complex. See, we, don't, we know people based on, on the experiences we have with them. So, so I, I won't know someone unless I've had like 15 different contexts of experience. And a lot of Christianity gets boiled down to, how do you know Jesus? Well, we have coffee together, and then I talk to him at church some. It's like, Jesus is really complex. There's a lot going on with Jesus, and there are contexts for you to get to know him. And one of those contexts is suffering, and one of those contexts is evangelism, and one of those contexts is your particular job. So you getting to know Christ means living and walking with him through the day in all of the various contexts of your day. You're going to learn new things about Jesus in these different contexts. Uh, Paul's theology does not look to be, um, how shall we say, it doesn't look to be unimpacted by his profession. A massive part of Paul's theology is the sheltering language. One of his most common features as he explains the gospel is to refer to being in Christ. Like this is a shelter, a shelter building person who sees Jesus in a way related to shelters. And then of course we have in second Corinthians chapter five, where he says, you know, this tent is being destroyed. We have a building from God, a, a, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And he says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may be not found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we be unclothed, but that we be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. When you work with Jesus, you're going to see Jesus in ways you would not have seen him if you hadn't worked with Jesus. Uh, number five, coworkers. As I mentioned earlier, Paul's interaction with Aquila and Priscilla wind up eventually overflowing into their correcting the preaching of Apollos. That's found in verse 24, if you want to look at that on your own. So that the people you work with 
are part of the, those that God has given you to influence, to love, to serve, to pray for, and so forth. And number six, church. It, the main thrust of this passage, and we'll hit this more next week, the main thrust of this passage is that Paul is laboring to support the proclamation of the word. So if I was going to put a bunch of pictures on your desk, you know, I'd put your, the people that you're supporting and I'd put a picture of Jesus, right? And I'd put, you know, whatever. I'd put all these pictures. And I'd also put a picture of, like, the gospel being preached in all the world. I'd put a picture of a globe or a picture of a Bible or something. Because as you're doing your work, you need to say, these are all the things that God is doing through my work. Um, Michael Pratt, who's a guy who studies identity uh, and identity in work and so forth, he was talking about this very thing. He's like, um, there's this old tale of bricklayers, three bricklayers at work. And you go to the first bricklayer and you say, what are you doing? And he says, I'm putting one brick on top of another. And he goes to the second bricklayer and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm making $6 an hour. And he goes to the third bricklayer and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral, the house of God. And you see, everybody that does work, and we all do work, does have some way of calculating its value and its meaning. And then we associate our identities with that meaning. And the reason why so many of us struggle to find vocational joy, whether that's we're working at home or uh, we're caring for our children or we're, we're doing something else, the reason why so many of us struggle to find vocational joy is we just can't see Christ in all of it. We can't see the thing behind the thing. And that is, is that no matter what you're doing, if you're his, you're part of this orchestration that he's doing. You're an instrument. Your job's an instrument. And he's doing this magical orchestration where he is building his kingdom right then through your very work. That's the real inside of the text. See Jesus at work in your work. And you will find joy and meaning in your work. Well, none of this is groundbreaking. <laughs> so why don't we live like this? Why is this not our experience? Like literally nothing I said was really at all groundbreaking. Why is this not our experience? I want to give you one proposal today and a couple more next week. Here's my initial proposal. We are obsessed with ourselves. And we are obsessed with how we feel, and we're obsessed with how we're seen, and we're obsessed with where we're going, and we're obsessed with whether our time is being wasted, whether our gifts are being acknowledged. Basically, we're working like atheists. And that's why we feel like atheists in our work. Another great book on work is written by Greg Gilbert called The Gospel at Work. And he writes this, because of Jesus's work on the cross on our behalf, because he lives and reigns right now, we have identity, belonging, love, acceptance, forgiveness, adoption, justification, and reward. It is all ours for all eternity. Because that's true, we are gloriously freed from having to pursue those things or rather cheap imitations of them through our work. 
do you see we don't need our work to provide an identity for us? We already have an identity in Christ. We don't need it to give us a place to belong. We already have been adopted by God because of Jesus, and we belong to his redeemed family. We don't need work to make us loved or liked or accepted, nor do we need it to prove to ourselves that we're worthwhile. Stay at home, moms. Stay at home, moms. Nor do we need it to to convince ourselves that we are worthwhile. Oh, don't fall. Don't fall for this. You think you're not being a victim. You're being obsessed with yourself. Stop thinking about yourself altogether. Who cares if you're worthwhile? Jesus loves you. That should be enough. We don't need work to make us loved or liked or accepted, nor do we need it to prove to ourselves that we're worthwhile. Why? Because all of that has already been secured for us by Jesus. So where does that leave our work? What role does that leave for it to play in our lives? Simple. It leaves our work liberated from the impossible demand to provide something for us that it was never meant to provide and from the excuse that it doesn't matter. We are set free to live lives of joyful, heartfelt service to our King. As we pivot to the communion, whenever you sit at a table, this is especially if you're younger, listen to me very carefully. Whenever you sit at a table with food on it, catch yourself just for a second, talking to all you kids and 12-year-olds and so on. Whenever you sit at a table where there's food, just hold on one second before you decide whether you're going to eat any of it, whether you like it or not. Just, just train yourself. Say this. What was the work that took place to put this here? What work went into putting this food at this table? And the answer to that is going to be somebody had to go do work at a job and earn money. And somebody else had to cook the food. And then, of course, there are all the people that had to farm the food and so on and so forth. But kids, when you sit down at a table, ask, what work had to go into making this food here, appear here? All right, kids, some of you are starting to take communion. It's the exact question you asked about this. It's the same question. What work? I know you don't think of this as dinner, but it's like the dinner. You know, It's the supper. And you go to this table and you ask, what work had to happen for this to be here? I'm not talking about Langston, although we appreciate him. I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus set this table with his work. So whenever we go to a table, we ask, what work was needed? And now we're going to this table, and we have to remember that it's a little bread and a little wine that, that, that implies limitless provision. It's like portion-sized food that is actually representative of the whole universe that Jesus has given you, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So we're going to think about work again next week. And as we do, we'll go to this table and we'll ask, what work had to take place? And the answer is, Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died so that we could be forgiven and made right before God so that we could see him in everything we do.
see him in everything we do, when we work, when we play, when we sleep, to see him in everything we do. So let me pray, and then I want you to come and partake of this table that has been provided by Jesus. Lord God, we lift up your holy name and thank you for Jesus Christ, who has accomplished the work for us that we could never accomplish, who has made us right with God, and who has made us able to say that we are more than conquerors, and that we Lord, we don't look at any situation and wonder where you are. I mean, we wonder, but we, we always see eventually where you are. Lord, you are turning all things to the good of those that love you and are called according to his purposes. So as we partake of this table today, this bread that represents the broken body of Jesus, this juice that represents the blood of Jesus, we praise you for doing the work that we could not do to make us not only right with you, but to make us, Lord, able to go into the world and see you in all things. In your name we pray with grateful hearts. Amen.